Welcome to Healthcare Rounds, the podcast serving you the ins and outs of health policy and business topics, as well as our take on the rapidly evolving healthcare delivery ecosystem. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the W.P. Carey School of Business and the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. This week on Healthcare Rounds, I'm speaking with A.J. Loyacano, CEO of a new pharmacy benefits management company called Capital RX. A.J. is a successful entrepreneur with 20 years of experience in pharmacy benefits and software development. As the CEO of Capital RX, his mission is to change the way pharmacy benefits are priced and administrated in the U.S. Prior to Capital RX, A.J. was co-founder of Truveris, where he served for eight years as CEO, Chief Innovation Officer, and Board Member, leading the company to record growth, posting on the Deloitte Fast 500 and Crane's Fast 50 lists. Prior to Treveris, AJ co-founded SMS Partners, a joint venture with Realogy, and in 2010 exited the partnership with a buyout. In his first venture, AJ started Victrix, a pharmaceutical supply chain software consultancy, and successfully sold the company to Chrysalis Solutions in 2007. AJ, thank you so much for spending some time with me today and setting aside some time. I'm really, really looking forward to speaking with you, and I think our listeners as well are going to get a lot out of today. So I think that the best way for us to start off is to just tell me a little bit about Capital RX. Not the whole business model, because we're going to get to that. But a little bit, a little bit about that, and and kind of how you how you came to the organization. And I should say, just kind of for for people listening, we had done a, a write up. I saw, I believe, a press release or was an article somewhere, and I just thought your business was fascinating. So we, we'd done a write up on what you're all about, and that encouraged me to reach out to you for this interview. So. That's the background on my end, but tell me a little bit from from your perspective, how you got there and what your business is. Sure, John, thank you so much for having me. My background is I've spent, I guess, close to 20 years in the pharmacy supply chain. So I cut my teeth doing supply chain software conversions from MRP to MRP2, ERP. I uh, did that for seven, eight years, moved over to software as a service, started a company that did audit and procurement solutions for large payers. I did that for seven, eight years. And during that time frame, it gave me a front row seat to everything I liked and disliked about the pharmacy supply chain, as well as pharmacy benefit, contracting, and service. One of the things that really bothered me was just the level of opacity and unnecessary complexity within prescription pricing. If you think about it, it's like no other market in the United States. And what I mean by that is, you know, normally the buy and the sell side can freely communicate and speak with each other. But if you think about it, pharmacy benefits is unique where the buy side, effectively the employer groups and the sell side, the pharmacies are prevented from speaking with each other. And that creates a highly inefficient market. If you look at PBM contracts, they're 50 to 100 pages long. They're incredibly complex, and there's not a single prescription price listed in them. And if you look at every other type of good or service, it has a list price. It has something that can be referenced, and the buyer and seller can freely communicate. And for me and my colleagues, when we formed the company, 
we really wanted to create a framework that focused on creating an efficient marketplace for drug pricing and allowing the buys and sell side to freely communicate, which is a radical disp- you know, departure from traditional spread pricing. And the reason why we wanted to do this is this is really isn't the value proposition of Capital Rx. It's the appropriate framework, especially for such a critical part of healthcare delivery, pharmaceutical services. Where we wanted to spend all of our time is on better service, better outcomes, providing the insights that are required to help a population not just navigate their current needs, but you know, really help address where the future of healthier is going, especially as we see more and more expensive medications enter the market. So that's kind of a quick summary of how I got here in Capital Rx. Great. So I, one thing I can say is uh, universally, I would say that, that or at least 99% of our listeners, despite the fact that they're all healthcare people, would have a hard time describing pharmaceutical pricing and the typical role of the PBM and the money flows. Can you just take a few minutes and take your time, baby steps, assume that if, if the, the listener does not know anything other than they go into the pharmacy and they pay their $20 copay, how everything works. And then we can get to why your organization uh, is so different and could be a game changer. Sure. Well, let's start at the beginning, which is why is someone engaging with a pharmacy benefit manager? It's usually it's a self-insured, possibly a fully insured service in the sense that someone is administrating the pharmacy benefit. And, you know, administrative services comes in a bundle of different obligations from clinical oversight to simple things like eligibility and card printing, customer support service. But then we get to the pricing end of it. And Contracts in the United States between an employer and a PBM are very complex documents that a handful of subject matter experts you know, can carefully navigate and go into. But more importantly, the way drugs are priced in the United States is so odd. I mean, I often state that there are no drug prices in the United States and people scoff at me and say, oh, is that really true? And I go, well, take a simple drug for a second. You know, let's just take amoxicillin. 21 count, 500 milligram, commonly dispensed drug, top 20 dispensed drug for any employer group in the United States. And, you know, this is a simple example. There shouldn't be too much to fight about on the price of amoxicillin. But if I ask a group of pharmacists or subject matter experts, what's the price of that prescription? You're going to be met with silence because they know it's a trick question. And that's pretty much all drug pricing. And the reason why is that if you look at the list price, you know, the AWP, average wholesale price, that's provided by Medispan, you know, over a 15-year period, it tracks. It's like $7 to $9. It's a half a percent of inflation. And you look at it, you say, it seems about right. But the reality is, is the acquisition cost of generic drugs have been deflating over the last 10 years. And so the actual acquisition cost is deflating more like 6 to $2. And you know, so already you have this decoupling between list price and reimbursement price. And, you know, let's examine what that is for a second. Yeah, so, I, I don't mean to interrupt. If, I, was, I was just going to say, AJ, that yeah. is that is crazy. That flies in the face of what I think most people 
would say that they're reading about in the papers is the increasing cost of even generic drugs. So you're telling me that there's deflation going on, and I know you were going to do it, but I just you're going to unpack that for me. But I, I'm just saying it goes counter to what I what I think about or what what I thought was true. Well, and I think that's part of it, which is how would you know? You know, I often say an employer or a patient's entire experience is their own little world because you only know what you last paid for a prescription or an employer only understands what their last invoice was for a basket of prescriptions, if you will. So, you know, when we look at this model going back to something as simple as amoxicillin, you have so many layers of complexity now because someone will be like, well, well, what's the price the employer receives? And I go, well, this is confusing because there's no list price for amoxicillin in an employer agreement. You have an average annual effective rate for all generic drugs. You could have 30,000 unique NDC-11s, national drug codes that are bucketed into something called a generic bucket. But let me add to the complexity. Every single carrier and PBM has a different definition of a generic drug. Why? Why? Yeah, why? <laughs> well, because it allows me um, to have more flexibility in my pricing. If I define what is in a basket of goods that over the course of the year sets a performance marker, the more flexibility I have, the more flexibility I have to make profitability in a spread pricing model. So. You know, I used to always think about it. Why can't we even agree on what's a generic drug or a brand drug or a specialty drug? And then all the flavors in between, single source, multi-source, DAW handling. And I'm not going to get into that level of complexity, but let's just keep it simple. So the way a generic drug shows up for an employer is it's just another generic drug in a bucket of thousands of other generic drugs. And I can't even agree what a good price is on a single day because the contract states that you can only judge all generic drugs and let me further make it more complex through retail in a 30-day supply over the course of an entire year you know if you and i just sat down over lunch with a clean sheet of paper we would never design a benefit program like this. We'd never design a pricing structure like this. It's just completely illogical. What it should be is what is the list price for the actual drug? Even better, what is the pharmacy offering that drug? What is the pharmacy offering to sell it to me for? And, you know, something odd happened over the history of the pharmacy benefit industry that once upon a time, pharmacy benefits were kind of a commodity in the sense that it was a dollar per script, fixed fee. They didn't get involved between the buy and the sell side. They were an administrator, electronic processor of claims, and that was the end of it. And then they had a really good marketing idea, which is, hey, there's no more administrative fee. I'm going to charge you nothing. But for this right, I'm going to keep whatever happens in between. And when that occurred, things became complex. And the visibility of the buy and the sell side, I keep going back to this, between the pharmacy and the end payer disappeared. And when that occurred, you have a market maker, because that's effectively what a PBM's role is, that prevents the buy and the sell side from communicating. And so when someone shows up at the register and the price is $6 for amoxicillin, 
you think it's right. And I'm not talking copay. That copay could be a flat $5. It could be $2, depending upon the plan design. It could be coinsurance. It, you know, it could be a high deductible plan. You're paying the full $6. But I'm going back to the plan level, ultimately, which what is the plan being charged? And if it's $6, what people don't understand is generic drugs also are what's called on a MAC list, a maximum allowable cost list. And this is another dimension of complexity. But basically, at the sole discretion of the PBM, you could set the price of the generic drug at any time in any pharmacy. And, and, and people are like, wait, let me get this straight. The pharmacy buys the drug, stocks their shelf, and the PBM tells the pharmacy the price that they sell it at. I'm like, even better. They tell the PB, the PBM is telling the retail pharmacy the price that the plan is going to be paid. And it'll say, what's the copay for the patient? But ultimately, how much is the plan charged for that drug? And then the pharmacy waits with bated breath to see how much am I reimbursed? They could be charged $6, you know, for the employer, but they could receive $3 back. They could have purchased the drug for $4 and be underwater, but that's just the way it works. And this is a problem. You know, I don't, I'm not anti-business in the sense there's nothing wrong with taking a profit or having a spread, but you must communicate what that is. And that's the problem with the pharmacy benefit system is nobody knows how much is being absorbed in this process. So what we decided to do is let's fix this problem. Let's put the buy and the sell side together for the first time. And when I gave this presentation to pharmacy retailers, they're like, what's the catch? And I said, there is no catch. This is the way it should be. I get paid a flat per script or per employee fee. And I don't want to have any conflict or confusion as to why we're recommending something or perhaps deploying a program because it makes it very simple. So when we went to the retail pharmacies, we said, I'm going to give you a copy of the invoices to my employers. So you could see if you provide a specific price point, I'm charging the employer that exact amount. And then we reverse the process that I give to the employers the reimbursement file back that we're giving to the pharmacies. And and what you're doing is you're creating trust. You're creating efficiency in the marketplace. You're putting the buyer and the seller together. And what you hope over time is that market becomes more efficient, that if a retailer wishes to provide more value to the end customer, they can because they know no one is encumbering the price. And it's an important part of it. So the first thing we started with was this concept of a clearinghouse network. You know, the most famous clearinghouse, the New York Stock Exchange, the buy and sell side communicate, and both parties can counter-authenticate that transaction. Yes, it was $6. The other part of it was the source price. AWP is kind of decoupling from reality, especially on generic drugs. We looked at all the different pricing sources out there, and we like NADAC the best, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. We, we like it because it's maintained by CMS, the government. I like it also because the data doesn't sit behind a paywall. You know, anyone can go to cms.gov and download the NADAC pricing frame set. The other thing is it's it's maintained on a weekly basis. If the price is plus or minus 2%, it's updated. It's a broad survey of small to mid-sized retail pharmacies 
I like that because it provides fair reimbursement to pharmacies. There's no reason why this has to be an adversarial relationship. It's cost plus. Each pharmacy defines what their cost is, and it creates a fair reimbursement schedule, and it allows the pharmacy to dictate the value they provide. And so it creates a trusting environment where value can be delivered, the buy and sell side communicate, and it's utilizing CMS, NADAC pricing, which is used for Medicaid reimbursement in some states. And so we like the process. Is it perfect? The answer is no. But it's an extraordinary first step in providing price transparency because what have we done? We've thrown out that crazy MAC list where you can have the same generic drug, plus or minus 40% at any time. You create price consistency. You now have patients showing up and they have the same experience. It's the same source price. It doesn't matter which pharmacy you're standing in. Everyone has the same source price. It just may be a little bit more or less depending upon which pharmacy you're standing in. And you can decide that as a consumer. But it's this framework that was so important, the wrapper of the clearinghouse, that NADAC is, is, is very helpful. But the clearinghouse is what made it workable or efficient in the sense that bringing these two parties, the buyer and the seller together, is extremely important. So, AJ, I want to I'm just to illustrate even more so the magic of your business model. I want you to take me back one more time through let's say a, a branded drug where that script costs $100 and um I pay a $10 copay. How much on, on average if you just had a Stab a guess. Walk me through again so that people can really understand spread pricing. How much the pharmacy pays when they buy it, how much the employer pays, and where the PBM is making that spread. Sure. So if you were to look at a $100 drug using your example of a $10 copay, so obviously your experience is you go to the register and you pay $10 and receive your drug. Now, the pharmacy's expecting a payment of $90 from the PBM. So a couple weeks go by and a reimbursement file comes in. And there's you know thousands, tens of thousands, depending upon the chain. There are going to be millions of claims in there. And, and one of them is your $100 transaction. And you, know, you as the pharmacy are really hoping for $90. Now, you might get $80. That's crazy. You might get $70. You might get $95 now. <laughs> but the, re- the reality is it's probably going to be equal to or less. And now this is the problem, is the difference between what was charged to the plan, which is in this case a $100 bill, and it's saying $90 is what the employer owes because you as the employee have paid $10. You know, the pharmacy would love to get 90. But the reality is they might be getting 70. They might get 60. Who knows in this equation because it's variable. But it's that's the difference. That's the spread in the transaction. And the PBM in a traditional pricing model keeps that amount. Now, this wouldn't be a bad situation if the employer said, oh, I could see you kept $30 on that transaction. Okay. But what that enables the employer to do is to say, well, are they worth $30? See, when you have a market maker that obscures the buy and the sell side, no one really understands relative value. 
You just know it's free, but nothing's truly free. What is the cost of the service? And no one can really gauge the cost because no one's allowed to understand the spread. So we threw that model out entirely because it doesn't make sense. In your example, the PBM is pocketing that spread, but aren't they also, if it's a branded product, haven't they also negotiated a rebate of some sorts with the drug manufacturer as well? Sure, for market access. I mean, there's a formulary. And it's one of the most interesting aspects of what I call 21st century supply chain. You know, if you look at what I would say pharmaceutical manufacturer stock in the 21st century, you know, and I have a great slide I use on this all the time is, you know, unfortunately, you know, many people raise an angry fist and they say it's the pharmaceutical manufacturers there to blame. But it's a little more complex than that because I always say, look at the stock market to determine who's making the money. So if you look at Pfizer, Merck, Sanofi, Novartis, their stock is flat in the 21st century over the last 19 years. You know, what's interesting is the further you move down the supply chain away from the manufacturers, no longer bearing the cost of R&D, manufacturing, you know, sales, you know, you look at the wholesalers, you know, Amerisource Bergen, you look at McKesson, they're doing okay. Maybe their stock over that period is up 300, 400%. And then you go further downstream to the PBMs and carriers, and their stock is up anywhere from 800% to 1,800% over that period of time. And so who's the greatest beneficiary of inflation in the United States? The stock market would indicate the PBMs and the carriers. And people oftentimes say, you know, why? You know, how is that? Because every time a manufacturer increases the price of a drug by a dollar, a portion of that goes rolling down the supply chain. And ultimately, it ends up you know, in what we call market access in the sense of pay-to-play economics to be on a formulary. So yes, to answer your question, on that branded transaction, there is also a rebate payment or manufacturer-derived revenue. You know, also the manufacturers are paying for access through coupons, patient assistance programs, et cetera. You know, and all of this impacts gross to net. But I think it's important to remember that this scenario has been building up over 19 years. And so that's why when people say the the PBMs really don't care when price is raised because if their rebate is a percentage, then they're making more money off of that price increase than they were before. Well, it's one of the interesting aspects of the entire pharmacy benefit industry. It, I call it the perfect market. It has a truly inelastic demand curve. doesn't matter what happens with interest rates or the stock market. Patient utilization is rock steady. In addition, even if you don't sell an additional account, your top line magically increases about 5% due to inflation as well as proliferation of specialty, which is the average cost per script is creeping up. So when you have a market scenario in which you have perfect economic conditions and you really don't have to innovate because it's just good times. I mean, think about it. Why does a company have to innovate? There's something challenging. There's a recession. There's a transition in the industry. But nothing has really changed in the last 19 years. And it's just been a perfect market of inflation compounded year over year and an inelastic demand curve. There's no other industry like it in the United States. 
So I often say the industry chose consolidation over innovation, which is why we see, you know, a few large companies dominating the industry. So what you see today is kind of a, you know, a 19 year period that probably represented 30 plus mergers and acquisitions in the industry. So back to your, your organization, what, if I'm understanding things the correctly is you virtually eliminate spread pricing. You provide total transparency to all the parties involved of the, of on pricing and you're just taking a flat fee on every transaction. So you're sort of agnostic on what kind of drugs people are buying or using. So in other words, in fact, are you looking to get contracts with pharmaceutical manufacturers or are you also kind of turning the other way on that as well? No, I think there's a real opportunity to engage with pharma. I mean, I have the same kind of philosophy, which is I don't want to encumber and get involved between the value that's being provided, be it through the manufacturer to the patient in the plan or the pharmacy and the patient in the plan. Today, we use a rebate aggregator like many people in the pharmacy benefit industry. I think what we point out is we don't keep a nickel of the money that we receive through manufacturer rebates. So we're willing to go as far as even provide the checks as they come in to our payers and show that we're not encumbering or taking any revenue out of this transaction. You know, Ultimately, it's as if we're the aggregator for you in your own plan in the sense that you're receiving the full value. But I think from your earlier point, the real value here with pharma is to engage with them and, and not just look at the way market access works today. I, I think it's a vital function um, to work with pharmaceutical manufacturers and highlight especially therapies and medications that work. But I think as we look at more expensive therapies and more expensive drugs that are coming to market, including gene therapies, I think we're going to have to look at novel ways to look at the payment and reimbursement workflow, especially around patient access and outcomes. You said something that I want you to clarify, a rebate aggregator. So that's an, an insider's term that I don't, I'm, I'm not aware of, and I certainly think that a lot of folks listening aren't aware of. Can you explain what they do, what role they play? Certainly. So if you think about it, as a smaller PBM, um, it's tough to get the attention of pharmaceutical manufacturers. So what you do is you partner with someone and you use them as an aggregator. You work with them and you say you already have existing relationships and contracts, so we're going to piggyback on your existing arrangement. We do this for a fee, obviously, to have them administrate, but we don't keep any of the money as it comes through. So, you know, very... Quite often, you see even uh, like carriers use aggregators, like an Aetna may use a CVS, Signum uses Express Scripts, Anthem uses an aggregator. You know, people over time developed aggregator relationships, even large carriers. So for ourselves as a smaller PBM, we use an aggregator today. But I think there's an opportunity, going back to your question, is I think pharma should be looking more broadly at the marketplace and thinking about ways that they can deliver more efficiently. And they should take a strong look at innovative companies like ourselves and our desire to work with them to deliver that value. You know, AJ, as I, I look at, at your company and 
just at this market. And to your point, the largest PBMs take up what 70, 80% of the share. How are you going to grow your business when you've got like three, four, five, 800 pound gorillas that you're competing with and a bunch of other smaller PBMs that are going for the scraps? How are you, how are you going to call attention? How are you going to market and grow your business in the face of this kind of competition? Well, I I think we've already been very successful out of the gate. I think there are plenty of employers out there and union groups and municipalities that are looking for a more transparent model, one that's aligned with the payer and where they could feel comfortable that it's a simplified agreement. They could see what we see in the financial transaction. And if if there are ways to contract more value, they know they're going to get it. I always feel like, you know, the eye-opening moment is when I work with an employer and they say, well, I get it now. Kind of, you're giving me the floor of savings and it only gets better from here on in. And I'm like, exactly. Versus a traditional deal, it's kind of, you're looking at the ceiling. This is the maximum value you're going to be allowed to receive. And so when we look at competition, I look at innovative, progressive organizations that are seeking ways to save money have better transparency to full financial information, and they also want to have a consultative approach. You know, if you were to speak with our client base, they would say outstanding service is one of the first things that they could see in our organization from day one. Two, they would say that we did exactly what we were going to say we're going to do. We saved money for that organization, material savings. And the third part would be we provided them insights, things that no one had ever told them before or helped them manage their population more effectively. And it's that consultative approach, which is so important. So I think it's a combination of that framework that we talked about. The clearinghouse model is so critical and the focus on what we call the human capital side, trying to work with the employer to understand that healthcare is an investment. It doesn't have to be viewed as a cost, but you have to start with full transparency around price. And now we can work on the bigger problems together. Um, you know, I understand there are large PBMs out there. I, I don't necessarily view them as competitors. There may be even ways that we can help them over time. I think the entire industry is about to shift away from volume to value, which is in the past, if you think about it, you would hire a PBM to provide administrative services. And it was like print my cards, answer my phone, set a formulary, drug utilization review, et cetera. But these things became commodities over time, especially with electronic programming and oversight. And I think it's becoming that value aspect. What are you providing on top of that the industry is shifting to? And you're going to have to operate more effectively and more efficiently. And I feel we have a framework around this. I think we've invested quite heavily into our technology and services and will continue to be an innovator and a leader in there. So, you know, when I look at, you know, being competitive in the marketplace, I think we're already there. I think as more people are introduced to the clearinghouse model versus traditional or old school pass-through pricing, they're going to find that it's a much better framework to operate under. And then it enables what we would say much better outcome. So ultimately, I hate to just dumb this down, but if I understand your model, you're competing on service because anyone can follow a clearinghouse model. And it could, as you say, become more competitive. But where you're 
differentiating yourself is on the level of service that you're providing your clients. That's exactly it. And I keep going back to this because I think it's important. You know, if everyone were to have access to fair, clear, transparent pricing, we think that's great. I think the job of the administrator, especially in today's environment of growing more expensive drug therapies, is that you need to provide a better service, you know, and a better service is better care for the patient, better access, more timely responses. In addition, thinking about ways you can help improve outcomes for the plan. And, you know, it's been very difficult for employers to rationalize healthcare as an investment. And we do spend an awful lot of time with our employer groups in recommending novel programs, unique ways in which they can make a difference. And it's back to that consultative approach, asking a client, what am I solving for? Yes, lower prices, I understand, but are we also trying to solve for better patient access? Are we trying to solve for better outcomes? Do Do these things need to be mutually exclusive? And the answer is not necessarily, but let's work together. You know, is there a budget around this? Is, you know, are there ways that we can reinvest the savings thoughtfully? And so, you know, back to that transition from volume to value, we believe that service and insights are going to be critical over the next few years and decades to come. The way that you explained, and I'm sorry that I made, I, I tortured you. I made you explain it six different ways till Sunday, but um, the spread pricing and just the way that, that drugs are paid for and distributed. Does pharma want to change? Does pharma have any incentive and there's, I'm, I'm not giving you a loaded question here. I just want your opinion to to want to go to a different model to see to it that there is a different model out there for for distribution and pricing. I would think so. I think that especially the timing is right. You know, if we had this conversation maybe five six years ago, I would say probably not. But I think for the first time, you're starting to see, at least we are, pharmaceutical manufacturers kind of look across the supply chain into unique areas in which they can, you know, engage with patients. And so I I think that pharma is interested in exploring new models. I I don't think, you know, like anything else, uh, large companies move at their own pace, But I do believe that they are very open and interested, and we have been engaged directly by a couple manufacturers recently with the announcement of our clearinghouse model, and we've had some great discussions there. So, you know, personally, I have seen a great response. I've seen pharmaceutical manufacturers saying, we'd like to talk to you about this, and the initial discussion we've had have been great. And so, you know, it's a sample of a couple, but I would like to say that they're, you know, well-established organizations. And if they're willing to look at new models, I think the broader base of the industry would also be interested. I don't, I don't see there's any downside to it. Right. One thing I was thinking about, and you've mentioned in passing the, the increasing amount per script with the move towards these specialty drugs and then gene therapy. I mean, what what do you see for the future, and and how are we going to how are we going to address it? And I, maybe maybe a different question is is does does your model help with those increasingly expensive drug therapies as well as gene therapies? Sure. Well, you know, it begins with having price transparency. So. 
you know, again, providing an unencumbered price that is being provided from your specialty partner or retail partner that that price is the price that they're selling it for. No one's getting in between that number. I think the second part is when you look at the pharmaceutical manufacturers, you know, you, I think they understand these are very expensive medications. So, you know, let's just use an example. Let's say it's a gene therapy using an arbitrary number of a million dollars. You know, and this is a, an odd paradox because, you know, when, when ERISA was created and you saw the expansion of self-insurance, you know, you see plans that are 500 lives, a 500 life plan in the United States that's employees plus dependents. It's about $500,000 in, in drug spend. And so, okay, I have $500,000 in drug spend. If you have a million dollar prescription come through, that is catastrophic to the plan. You know, suddenly I, I never anticipated this cost. And that's a CFO's nightmare. So how do you pay for it? And, you know, and I understand what pharma's saying. If it's a cure, I'm saying over the course of this person's life, the cost would be many times this. And, and I understand that. But the issue becomes the average employer is probably seeing attrition of like, you know, every three years, you know, average you know, time an employee is in a corporate environment is three, four years before they move to their next job. You know, municipal or union, that might be seven to 10 years, but it, it's, it's not a lifetime. So the plan is scratching their head and saying, well, why am I paying, you know, the cost of something that's going to be amortized over the life of someone's experience? And so I think there's a couple ways to address it. And I think our company has is, is been working very hard on this. So you know, one to the human capital side, I think there's possibly a different way to engage with pharma on the rebate side, where today it's you pay the full cost of the drug and then the pharma manufacturer pays the PBM a rebate and a portion goes back to the employer. And I think it should almost be reversed where they pay a lower cost for the drug if the drug does what it is designed to do, there's either the real world evidence or some sort of outcome that's defined ahead of time, that then the pharma manufacturer receives the full payment or a greater payment. I think that's a way to think about these drugs rather than, you know, kind of pay and pray that it worked. I think it has to be more of pay less. And when it does work, you reward pharma for a great product. I think the other thing that we look at quite a bit is what we call kind of global reinsurance. So one of the things that we've been working with, especially with our smaller payers, is banding them together. Because even if you have what's called stop loss, this is an insurance program designed to you know, stop the ultimate risk corridor, if you will, or cost to a plan at a certain attachment point. So, you know, most stop loss is medical and pharmacy. So going back to my 500,000 life case, let's just say they've got a $3 million stop loss program, and that's for medical and pharmacy, you know, and the attachment point on it is $3.5 million. And you know, lo and behold, you get hit with a $2 million gene therapy, you're going to blow right through it. You're also going to blow right through your million dollar corridor and coverage or whatever that maximum amount is. And so it's still not helping you. So what you're going to have to look at is, you know, spec programs around gene therapy and pooling risk where you're going to charge, you know, maybe it's a dollar, maybe it's 75 cents per member per month as kind of a global insurance program, you know, where 
everybody in the effect, each employer group that participates, they know that they're protected by some level of coverage. And that's where I think we're going to have to go to afford these drugs because, yes, it's one in 10,000, one in 50,000. The odds are, are high, but it doesn't mean it's impossible for you not you know, to be hit by one of these drugs. So I, I think you're going to look at more global reinsurance and coverage, especially for smaller plans, because I think reinsurance, if you think about it, you know, is important for this program. And when you have companies that have carved out at 500, 1,000 lives, you know, in the old days, they were just worried about brand utilization and, you know, the average cost of a drug being 120 bucks. And so if you kind of look to the future suddenly, you know, even if you're right around 10,000 lives, which is $10 million in drug spending, $2 million drug is a 20% increase in your trend. So I, I almost see any plan under kind of 5,000 lives in particular looking at some sort of way to provide global reinsurance around these programs. Because I think if a medication is available to cure someone, I think we should certainly look at it. We just want to make sure that it works as well as we want to make sure that nobody is paying you know, an unfair share of it. And I think sharing that risk is, is a good way to do it. And I think the employers that we have spoken with about this type of program have been very positive in their response. Does all this go away? I love asking quasi-political questions. <laughs> Does all of this go away if uh, Elizabeth Warren gets elected and gets her way? Or Bernie? Yeah, I think either one of them would obviously require smart, capable partners in the healthcare area to deploy their services. So, you know, if you look at Medicare, you know, Medicaid, large government programs that are still implemented by private companies. So you're still going to need people to implement them. And I think some of the price transparency, you know, you would hope is forced upon everyone. It's one of the things that when we wrote our initial business plan, someone would question us and say, well, well, what happens if all of this craziness goes away and be like, uh, that works wonderfully for us because we're already operating there. I'm already operating on the narrowest of margins because we've already created a framework and an organization that sees that's where the future is headed. So, you know, I think regardless of legislation or regulatory oversight, I think the industry is moving in a direction of hyper-efficiency with organizations like ourselves and others that are going to push very hard for this. And so I applaud any government support or programs that could accelerate or catalyze these processes. But ultimately, as a business, you have to stand on your own two feet and operate in the market. So we're operating today as a clearinghouse model, and we think it's going to be a category many people are going to adopt. Yeah, and and the, what I was thinking about with respect to those kinds of Medicare for all proposals is that it eliminates from society's perspective, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it eliminates the issue of, well, I'm only going to be employed here for three years and then I'm on to my next gig. And sure. so why should I, why should I be paying $2 million for that, that employee when they're just going to be looking for another or they're going to be working for another company in, in three, four, five years, when it is that 
single source, single payer, that's that benefit is being amortized over a lifetime. And there isn't that sort of, there isn't that disincentive to, to not provide coverage. Or from your stand, what you were describing, the need for reinsurance and all those other things. Yeah, I, I think I still believe that the private market is going to play an important role because you're going to need efficiency, efficiency and innovation to address these things. And as much as I applaud the federal government for their involvement and support, I think it's great. I think you're still going to rely upon innovation coming from the private sector because there are going to be things that we see are able to deploy, be more agile around and, and more efficient because even the federal government doesn't have a limitless well when it comes to cost. So I think it's going to be a partnership, you know, private-public, in which the public sector and the private sector are going to come together and, you know, deploy together these programs. Now, if it never comes to pass, you know, that, that's all right. But if it does, I still believe that they're going to require good partners in the pharmacy services area, you know, manufacturers to PBMs to pharmacies. They're all going to work together you know, regardless of what programs are, are coming or going. And so, you know, I, I think there's a place for everyone. Um, and, and I agree with you. It does take care of some of the issue. It's a, it does deliver some of the risk, but you're still going to need ways to improve upon any process. Yeah, no doubt about it. So before we go, I, I wanted to ask you this question in the very beginning. How did you, how did you get started? How did the founder, like, where did these ideas come from? What's your origin story? You know, it's kind of a funny story, which is uh, once upon a time, you know, I had a normal job sitting behind a desk. I started in finance and it was, I was waiting for the stock market to close. I had a friend call me up who had left the industry before me and he had called me up and he said, what are you doing? And I said, come on, I'm waiting for the market to close. It's 3.30. <laughs> he, he said, do you want to grab a beer? And I said, wow, Tuesday beer. I said, what's the occasion? He goes, I'm, I'm starting my own business. And I'm like, oh God, that sounds so cool. What is it? And he goes, I don't know, but you're going to be my business partner. And I just sat there for a second and I was just like, ah, eh, whatever. And at the time, I was working at uh, a company and an announcement came through that we had a trillion dollars under management. That's with a T. And I felt very small in the universe. Like, what do they need me for? <laughs> I think they're going to be okay without me. If it was any other Tuesday, I probably would have had that beer and went back to work the next day, a little bit of a hangover. But I gave notice to the surprise of my friends and my boss, I, I left and I sat down with my business partner with a clean sheet of paper and I like inelastic demand curves and I identified two. One was energy services, one was pharmaceutical services, and this is back in 2000. And I said, we don't live in the energy belt of Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, but we do live in the pharmaceutical belt of New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. So I go, pharma it is. And then I read an article in Forbes about the necessity of conversions from MRP to MRP2 at the time. And I saw in the article that every time a pharmaceutical manufacturer updates their software domestically, they have to do it 70 to 80 times around the globe. 
for all their different manufacturing locations. So I created a bench of engineers focusing on supply chain software conversions, many times discrete to the particular manufacturer. And in order to be on our engineering team, you had to speak at least three languages. We had a deployment in France. We would have a French-speaking person. If this deployment was in Japan, I had a Japanese-speaking engineer for you. Um, and we did that for seven, eight years. And the company was sold to Chrysalis in the end. But it was a wonderful experience. Got to work with all sorts of manufacturers. And it was just a great uh, experience. And it was my first experience into supply chain. It was understanding the cost of that pill as it comes out of the manufacturing facility, as it's sold to a wholesaler, it ends up ultimately down the line to a pharmacy and ultimately to a plan. And then years later, I got into the procurement and audit side of the business, and it was like the complete opposite, <laughs> you know, where you come from a world where you're down to the ingredient cost of how much something costs to be made to these broad contracts where I understood nothing about price and how an employer pays for these things. So, you know, even though they're interconnected, you would think the most specificity there is, is in a, you know, a bill of material, if you will, and the specificity of, you know, actually creating a drug and all the costs that go into it. And then the other side, which is the payer experience, and you have no understanding of what anything costs. And so, you know, that's what always fascinated me is these two worlds that are interconnected are completely different, but they don't have to be. And so connecting them is really part of Capital RX. And I, I keep stressing efficiency of market and communication between different people in the supply chain because I genuinely think that's what's been missing in the pricing framework for the US healthcare system. And once you get rid of that, you can focus on delivering true value to the patient and the pair. Sure, sure. Wow, AJ, we've gone through a lot. I've learned a lot, and I, I can't wait to uh, hear the, the final production. <laughs> There's a lot to chew on, and uh, I think you've highlighted not only how complex the world of um, uh, pharmaceutical distribution and, and the payers and, and PBMs, but it's not only complexity, but also some solutions to removing that complexity and creating more efficiencies and ultimately more value for, for patients and, and employers and other people uh, engaged with the healthcare system. So, so thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, look forward to uh, continuing the conversation maybe, maybe one day in person when I'm, when I'm out your way. No, absolutely. I mean, John, I I've had a blast. Thank you so much for uh, having me join today. And if you have any follow-up questions, I'd uh, love to chat with you. If you're ever in New York, come by the office. Love to introduce you to the team at Capital RX. And uh, for everyone, all the manufacturers out there listening, I hope they truly take advantage of not just us, but every innovative company in the supply chain today. Sure. Well, you may be getting a few phone calls. Thanks again. That's all for this week. From all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. If you haven't yet done so, please rate and review Healthcare Rounds wherever you listen to podcasts. Healthcare Rounds is produced by Diana Nikolic and engineered by Andrew Rojek. Theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group provides advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. To learn more about us, go to darwinresearch.com 
or send an email to insights at darwinresearch.com. Or if you'd like to get right to it, call us at 888-402-3465. See you next round.